Hello. Hello. I'm Robbie. And I'm Zach. And we are Free to Be. Free to Be is a podcast for LGBTQ plus youth across the state of New York. We talk about all sorts of things that affect queer youth in the Empire State. Brought to you by Youth Power of Families Together in New York State, Youth Power is a network hosted by Families Together that is run for and by youth and young adults. We work to ensure young people have meaningful involvement on all levels of the services that they receive. The opinions and viewpoints shared by staff and guests on this show do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Families Together in New York State. To learn more about us and our advocacy efforts, visit ftnys.org. Thanks. And enjoy. Hi, I'm Zach. Hi, I'm Robbie. Hi, I'm Allie. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Allie. Um, So today we're going to be talking about a topic we've been um, looking, me and Robbie have been looking forward to talking about for a long time, like ever since he joined the show. And that is the intersection between queer identity and disability identity. And we have a very special guest with us to join us in that very important conversation. So you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, Allie? Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Allie McCabe. I am the Education and Advocacy Coordinator for Access to Independence in Cortland, New York. Um, And we are an independent living center. So we help people with disabilities live independently in the community. And I uh, identify as both having a disability and as part of the LGBTQ community. So I'm super excited to be here and talk about this with you guys. Excellent. We are, we're super excited to have you. Yeah, all three of us here identify in some way as having both of those things. And it's a conversation I have had in like minor, minorly, like we do. The, the reason we were introduced to Allie is because... Uh, she does a wonderful workshop at our youth leadership forums all about uh, living on your own independently for youth who have disabilities. And I just remember, I think you offhandedly mentioned that you were like LGBTQ identifying and like internally, I was like, oh my God, she would be perfect for this episode. And here you are. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I put it in my intro just to uh, let everybody know what I'm about. So <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great. So, yeah, and it's something we've kind of alluded to, like during during the YLF, we also have the peer panel, which um, is relationship themed. So we have some um, youth who identify as having a disability come and talk basically to the other youth and answer some questions about relationships. Those can include romantic relationships, but also just like family relationships, interpersonal, professional, all that stuff. And it got, and it just gets me thinking like, it's um like not just queer identity specifically, but just romance and stuff like that is just not something that's, I feel like talked about in the disability space, like enough, which is kind of odd. And I'm, I think there's a few reasons for it that I can't quite quantify and like put to words necessarily, but I've always found it very peculiar that that's not something that like comes up very often and also ali i also want to say i really appreciate your transparency at the ylf when you came out in your introduction i'm a gay man and i also have disabilities and i always feel like i try to repress my gay identity because i always fear coming off too strong or i've repressed it just internalized it for so long that i didn't feel comfortable enough coming out while also having the other labels that i've been given over the years so i just want to say thank you for your transparency and i really appreciate your courage Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, this is the first 
job that I've had where I felt supported in doing that. Um, so that's a huge part of it. Just like the agency that I work for is wonderful and you guys are wonderful. So it was, it was sort of a, I already knew it was a safe space, um, which makes a big difference. I don't always do that, but I, I felt like I was, you know, able to in this situation and I'm glad that it was appreciated. That makes me happy. So. Yeah, that that's excellent. Um, thank you, Robbie, for saying that too. Um, yeah, I think we're all uniquely, I'm not sure what the right word is, but in a good position to talk about this too, because there's definitely not a lot of employment situations where it would necessarily behoove us to talk about, I like, honestly, sometimes either one, let alone like the, the combo of both. So uh, yeah, I'm really, really excited to be having this conversation. And it's going to be a lead in to, I have not decided yet, it's either going to be the second half of this episode, or maybe we're going to do a two-parter depending on how long it is. But this is also the lead into our free to be live event this week, which um, I'm super excited by. We're going to have some uh, young people on the show themselves. So it's not just going to be uh, me and Robbie bl- blabbering away um, for once. Um, yeah, this is a, it's a very important uh, topic to my heart, and I'm glad that we're uh, finally talking about it. First part of this is going to be a little bit more substantive in terms of just like getting some, maybe some terminology down, some history. I, you know, I, y'all know me, I'm, I'm a history buff. I love getting that stuff covered, and I think it's especially important here. And um, then later in the half, we'll do more uh, personal stuff and uh, talking about our own experience with how these identities um, have kind of a un- create a unique uh, concoction all, all their own. As, as we said, all three people here um, identify as having um, a, some combination of this. Now, obviously, each of our disabilities is probably different. So why don't we, um, as much as you're, uh, y'all are comfortable with, just to start this conversation, I'm, uh, I'll disclose exactly. So I identify as a gay man, a cisgender gay man, and I'm on the autism spectrum. I identify as a gay cis man or cisgender man, and I have Tourette syndrome and a generalized seizure seizure disorder. I I actually don't identify in any particular way at the moment, but I am a cis woman. Um, Queer works for me. I date people of all genders. It's just sort of irrelevant to me. Um, And I have uh, sensory processing disorders, which I am actually learning now as an adult, uh, we're probably ADHD all along. And so that's been a, an interesting process for me. Um, but I have some mental health disabilities as well. I was just imagining for some reason, like Scooby-Doo came to mind, like they unmasked a villain at the end. It was like, ah, it was ADHD all along. The whole time. That's totally <laughs> how I feel. <laughs> everything makes sense all of a sudden. But, yeah, everything uh, just like clicks into focus. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I had some sort of disability and no one ever pointed it out to me or like just you know didn't recognize it so so that's been an interesting time <laughs> and that's not at all uncommon like in the autism community specifically mm-hmm. too that is definitely not at all uncommon like I've met people in their 30s and 40s who were diagnosed and they were like everything about my life makes so much more sense and could have been <laughs> way easier if I had figured this out like way earlier um, yeah so yeah I mean that's autism specifically but I that's more of a common thing and I feel like it's being I'm not sure exactly what to attribute it to but like maybe we're getting a little bit better overall societally at like diagnosing stuff properly so some people are being like labeled correctly and they're like oh yeah now now everything makes sense and now I can like get the things I need to make my life easier 
Yes. And th so this was something I found very interesting that I did not know before I started doing the research here. So according to an article in the American Journal of Public Health, there's a higher rate and, and prevalence of disability within the LGBTQ community. So if you take the entire population of people who identify as LGBTQ, they are statistically more likely to also identify as having some sort of disability. Is that um, because we are less likely to seek help or treatment? Or is it like scientifically proven that if you're gay, you're more likely to be disabled? Um, I, I didn't, unfortunately, I didn't get too much into the weeds in terms of like their, their like cause um, or like kind of how they determine that. Honestly, me and like, feel free to jump in here, then this is just pure speculation on my part. So no, no one listening that that much is true that then that was a result from a peer reviewed journal, but this is just me riffing on it. So don't take that as like the same thing, but I almost feel like once you identify as LGBTQ or identify as disability, you're, you've already reached like a certain level of introspection. Mm -hmm. um, then like maybe like you're, you're, you're kind of at that point where you're more willing to figure certain stuff out about yourself. Like it's almost like opening like the floodgates to other th stuff. But um, I mean, if you guys have thoughts on that, like that's. Yeah. That I was seemed... wondering if um, research study is considering mental health diagnoses to be disabilities because we know that mental health challenges are higher among the queer community um so I wonder if that's part of it as well I don't I don't know um okay so I'm I'm reading through I was reading through this article last week but I'm reading through it again so uh they the methodology they used we estimated the prevalence of disability and its covarities um and compared by sexual orientation okay there's a lot of statistical jargon in here yada yada Okay, there's actually a lot of jargon in here that I don't understand. Um, they did science, and then they came up with that conclusion is what I'm getting out of this. Thank you, science. <laughs> Thank you, science. If y'all, um, if listeners are interested, I'll say just Google um, disability among lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults, disparities in prevalence and risk from the U.S. National Library of Medicine and Institute of Health. You'll probably come up with that article. And if you're more scientifically literate than I am, maybe you can parse out exactly how they came to that conclusion. <laughs> but yeah, I just found that very fascinating um as like i've been wanting to talk about this topic for so long and that's like something i didn't even realize and i also feel i feel like that's an internal factor and again speculation on my part but i also feel like there might be external factors too like lgbtq plus people are more likely to like also like be lower class like there's a lot of intersectionalities between other stuff that might results in more disability again I, I feel like I'm like reaching a little bit here, but I, there's a kernel of something I feel like I'm onto. But. Oh, definitely. So, and we've ha been having societally at large a lot of conversations about police lately, um, police brutality, mainly how it has to deal with the black community and people of color. However, I also found um, another tidbit here that almost half of the people that die at the hands of the police have been reported as having some kind of disability according to an article in the journal of gender social policy and the law um, and i just find that fascinating because in our first episode uh with amari we talked about stonewall and the queer people's 
let's say, trepidatious relationship with the police, especially early on in our history. So I find it kind of fascinating that there's an intersection there as well, that uh, the disability community also kind of has this um, kind of pro uh, problem with, oh, like over-policing, kind of, uh, not nearly to the extent that people of color do. But it, uh, I don't know, I find it fascinating that that's something else I didn't know um, before I started doing the, the research for this. Yeah, and I mean, for people who are multiply marginalized, if they're um, Black or BIPOC and queer, um, the rates are even higher, so. I mean, I also think of when looking at the BIPOC community or any oppressed community like Asian Pacific Islanders, that looking at their culture and how that plays into their, their daily life as well. So, I mean, one in two LGBTQ plus African-American youth say that their families are not supportive of LGBTQ plus people which is already kind of setting up that they're not really going to be open about it. They're, oh, I'm assuming, are like trying to ration and understand that, you know, maybe they wouldn't feel comfortable going to a doctor and that can, you know, perpetuate that statistic that you were talking about earlier, Zach. Also looking at like socioeconomic disparities between, I, I feel like it, maybe people don't have access to insurance and that would also stop them from going to seek help or uh, seek medical attention when needed. It's, it's, something that we really need to address as a society and not even sure how to have that discussion in order to advocate for. I mean, I think it's just that we have to have those discussions blatantly, um, but I don't know how our governing body can address that in an inclusive manner. And I, I think you were definitely hitting on something there in the kind of a distrust of institutions. Like to be clear, you don't need an official diagnosis to be like actually disabled. As far as I'm concerned, like it's mostly an issue of personal identity, almost similar to gender identity. That being said, being medically officially diagnosed can have you as an individual receive a lot of benefits. Um, including getting treated, uh, like even like certain like accommodations you might need, that kind of thing. So if you already have a built-in personal distrust of institutions, medical, legal, what have you, because of other identities, such as being a person, uh, being uh, BIPOC or being queer, then you're not, not going to naturally trust other things that might help you with the disability part of your identity. I, I think you are, you definitely touched on that there, which is, it's like, it's like a compounding problem. Like there are things in the world that can help you with each and like the combination of these identities. But if you've been burned before, so to speak, by one of these things, you might be as an individual, much not trusting of, um, the other things, which is unfortunate. And yeah, it's like you said, like it's it's a bigger question than we're gonna be able to answer here. We're not gonna be able to uh, solve uh, racism, uh, homophobia and ableism in, in, one, in one shot in one hour podcast episode, unfortunately. We can try, I just don't, I just don't think it's, it's gonna work. So yeah, I, I saw a recent statistic too, and it was um, LGBTQ plus youth who experience a high level of family rejection are eight times more likely to, to attempt suicide, three times more likely to use illegal drugs, and are three times at a higher risk for HIV um, compared to, to youth who experience low levels of family rejection. So I think it's a continuum, and it's just like pinballing one experience into another that catalyzes it. That brings us to another subtopic, which is mental health in the queer community, which 
I think we're only going to cover briefly here. Like that is definitely going to be its own episode because who oh boy, is there a lot to talk about there, but you were just hitting on something really important that just mental health problems in the queer community are abound and dramatically compounded by a whole bunch of things. Um, especially like youth, youth homelessness and like youth family abandonment in queer youth, like it has a direct correlation to the like dramatic increase in mental health problems, like uh, suicidal ideation, everything you said. And it's like you said, there are numbers to back this up. Like this is, this is not just speculation. Like all of these things, I like, I don't have a specific study in front of me, but like people who have queer affirming families or queer affirming support structures in place are significantly less likely to have any kind of um, men mental health uh, diagnosis or anything like that. Um, Good question, getting off topic a little bit. And I don't know if we're going to talk about this later, but... Well, we're yeah. never known for getting off topic, Robbie. So that's <laughs> this, never this happened before. Yeah, never, never, ever. But um, Zach and Allie, were, how were your families when you came out? So I came out semi-recently, um, only about four years ago. I'm 28, almost 29 now. I sort of um, intentionally waited until I was like an independent adult um, and sort of removed like the chances of rejection for myself. Or I mean, you know, emotionally they were still there, but I was living in my own apartment and I had a job. I, you know, was, was independent from my family um, and I, I didn't have huge worries about my parents, um, but I was also not super confident about how they would react because it had never been explicitly said to me, like, this is okay for you. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking back to like, sort of how it happened exactly. Because I, I didn't officially come out. I just sort of said like, I'm dating someone. This is what her name is. Um, and this is what's happening. <laughs> and so it wasn't really a discussion because I didn't leave room for one. I just sort of said, this is what I'm doing and I think you know people who know me well understand that they have to either accept that or they just don't get to be a part of my life but you know that was a very privileged coming out experience that I sort of crafted for myself on purpose because even though it would have been really devastating if my parents had reacted negatively or like other family members had reacted negatively um, I was going to be safe and I was going to be okay because I had a whole system of friends and like I said I had a, a full-time job I was supporting myself um, so that was, that was sort of my recent experience. And luckily, since I'm adult, an adult and came out as an adult, my experience has been mostly positive. Pretty much everybody has been okay. And, and like I said, if they're not, then just, well, I guess you don't get to be part of my life because this is who I am. So that's, yeah, a, a short version of, of how it all kind of happened for me. Thank you. That's amazing and also really admirable that you you waited that amount of time so that you had everything set up to where you want it to be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad because like no one should have to wait that long. Um, and I wish that I hadn't felt like I needed to. And I can talk about that a little bit more later. I was going to say like, I kind of wish I waited for like I came out when I was very young and then I had to go back in because of family rejection. Yeah. And then I came out again couple of years after and so it's there's been many years for the idea and the reality to to marinate in my family's mind I think that's really incredible how how you how you handled that so thank you yeah I uh <laughs> snaps thank you um I think really where it stemmed from for me was that like I was really angry about the fact that I even had to come out 
it just doesn't seem like something that I should have to do. Like nobody else in my family had to do that. So why should I? Yeah. Um, and that's really where it came from actually it was like a place of anger almost. Um, and I don't know if anybody else has had that experience. I was just kind of salty about the fact that like I even had to have this conversation. And so I didn't. <laughs> I feel like that, you know, how we were talking about earlier in the episode where I, I was really looking up to the fact that you came out upon meeting everyone at the youth, youth leadership forum. And I feel like it, on top of just like suppressing my emotions and suppressing that part of my identity, I also feel like I shouldn't have to have to come out. You know, why do I have to say, hi, I'm gay. I'm right. a guy that likes other guys. I'm just a human who loves another human who happens to be a male. What are your thoughts on this, Zach? Well, the, the listeners have heard my coming out story before, so I won't go into as much detail. I'll just briefly review it. Um, I share Robbie's sentiment in that I think it would have been better if I waited a little bit better, longer. My mom didn't didn't react the worst, but there was room for improvement, let's say. And it definitely did have an impact on some of my other like mental health stuff over the course of my life. We're 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 great now. Uh she she loves she loves my uh boyfriend that I live with. Um it just took her. It's kind of like you were saying, Robbie, like it's had time to marinate. So getting used to it over time can sometimes help and that being said we've also mentioned this on the show before uh, Ali your kind of method of coming out like waiting until you're kind of financially independent living on your own all that stuff that is a really good tactic and I think in some cases it would be better if more queer youth and queer people utilized it like if it is true that coming out is a good thing and that you should do it when you're ready though and part of when you're ready is personal safety and i when i say safety i mean physical safety shelter safety emotional safety so if you have any doubt that those things will be secure after you come out i would honestly wait until you are more independent living on your own basically don't have things that people could cut off from you that's a really kind of sad way of looking at it but unfortunately the we have the numbers for youth queer homelessness right like there's a reason why they are so high let's say so like coming out does improve your mental health over time but or improves your entire life over time but there are potentially depending on the situation short-term consequences that you definitely want to consider as part of your do i want to come out now or later discussion in your head and I think Allie's story is pretty demonstrative demonstrative of that being a good tactic in a lot of cases. Also, I was just mildly amused by like, I, I know you, like no one should have to go through what you did. That being said, I just kind of love the idea of you like saltily and passive aggressively just being like, uh, here's my girlfriend, bye. Like I just that. <laughs> That's a little bit pissed that I have to announce it. <laughs> yeah, just that entire like image in my head is just a little amusing. Again, you shouldn't have to do it, but it's, <laughs> sorry, it, it, it was a it's a tad it's a tad funny. Oh, totally, absolutely. I I think it is, and that's just sort of been <laughs> my style my whole life. Like, I, you know, I'm not hurting anybody, and so if you don't like it, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I think that's really demonstrative of, of that concept of sometimes it's okay to wait to come out and wait until you're ready, both you emotionally and practically due to your situation. 
Um, and this is going to bleed a little bit into, we're going to talk about our personal stories a little bit more later, but I also, this, it's relevant in that, like, like when I was younger, I had more overtly, I don't want to say symptoms, but like autistic tendencies, like it was a little bit more obvious when I was younger and I wasn't as good at like, I call it neurotypical passing. Like a lot, like a lot of, a lot of the times people don't know I'm on the spectrum unless I reveal it now. That was not always the case. So my mom was really overprotective when I was younger. Um, I actually talk about this a lot in the foundations and leadership part of the YLF, which is the parent section. I talked with the parents for a little while about my story. And I think like a, a lot of my mom's hesitance towards my queer identity, I think just came out of a place of love full, fully granted because part of being on the spectrum is not understanding social cues. So not only like and like romance, forget about it. Like it's, it, it's this complicated system of rules and like subtleties, lo like looks people give you across the room, like the way, the way people speak, not just the words they say, their tone inflection. When I was younger, all of that was a nightmare. Like I was just like, why can't people just say what they mean? That's why me and my boyfriend get along so well is because I just kind of need someone who says what they mean. Like if you're upset with me, you need to tell me or else I am never going to know. It's it, never like if you like let that stuff boil, like I'm going to I'm going to you're going to like explode. I'm going to be like, where did this come from? So adding on a queer identity to that, that means I had to learn a whole new set of rules. And I was already really bad at the old rules. <laughs> like it was not that nothing about that was helping. So and I, I think that I mean, I'm speculating here, but I think that was part of like my mom's hesitancy towards my queer identity. It's like, oh, great. Let's add this whole new thing into this already complicated and hard life you're going to have, which as a parent, I kind of get why you would be scared of that because you're you're adding a whole new layer of difficulty. I pressed the button and now I'm in Hogwarts. Um, I okay. Like <laughs> I totally did not do that. On I have a bunch of Zoom backgrounds and I don't know what I clicked, but uh, okay, we're going to roll with it. In my personal story, I think that was part of it. She spent such a long time trying to help me navigate the world, which was already not going to be kind to me because of my inability to read social cues. And now there was a whole new set of social cues that I needed to learn. I mean, it was also not fun for me either, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I do think that's a really common reaction for a lot of parents though. Um you know, not necessarily having a negative reaction to the identity, but like what that identity will mean for their child in the world. Um, and just all the fear associated with wanting your child to have an easy go in life um, or, you know, a, a safe and secure environment in the world. I know, you know not to tell somebody else's story, but I, I, I know a couple of people who um, have had that experience where like their parents weren't upset about their new identity, but they were just like really, really scared. Um, and so their reaction was not positive, but not for the reasons that the person thought. Um, and it took a, a little while to work through that. So I think that's, yeah, something really important for like support people in queer people's lives to think about. It's like, even if it's scary for you, think about how you can tailor, tailor your reaction so that the person who is reaching out to you doesn't interpret it the wrong way. 
Yeah, for sure. I yeah, I understand it's a place from con of concern, but at the same time, it's like it's like we're the ones who have to deal with it. So right. like we're yeah. also scared, <laughs> and you're like sometimes your reaction that's not helping. I know, I know, Robbie. Uh, in, a, in your first episode, you were I mean, only say as much as you want or are comfortable with, but you were talking about kind of a similar thing with the disability and the queerness kind of mixing together, freaked your parents out a little bit. <laughs> to put it lightly. My when I, because I first came out when I was 14, and I first came out as being bi rather than being who I actually am, I'm, I'm gay, because I thought that if I was bi, I would be a little bit more acceptable to my parents, which turns out that was actually the opposite. Yeah, I had the, I've talked about it at length in other episodes, so I won't go into it again, but basically same. The, the gist of it was that I was dropping another bomb on my parents by telling them that I was gay. And so, yeah, it played with my mind a bit, and I wound up going back in the closet for three years. And in that first episode, I believe I also talked about how I then came out at 17 to my mom, and she sat, I sat down in my bed with her, and I was like, Ma, I really have to tell you something. And she's like, I know you're gay. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> well, that that's cool reaction. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Like, Could yeah, have happened a little earlier, but, you know, better late yeah. than never. Yeah, the season just had to, you know, marinate in the sauce. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think it ha being gay and also having disabilities and my disability was a lot more prominent when I was younger. We you know when I was 16, I had a surgery that saved my life. And so I was always, I always had people looking at me in odd ways, you know, or I always felt like I, people would look at me like I had 12 heads and I was really bullied. And so I internalized a lot of people's reactions after I had the surgery that saved my life and made my symptoms decrease drastically. I just want to blend in as like a normal person and being a normal person to me meant not having anything that someone else could identify for me and being gay, you know, that's something that people want to put a label on and they're going to look at us in a certain way, or at least in my mind, that's how I, I think of it. I don't want to think of it like that anymore and I'm getting better about it. Just having those adverse experiences when I was younger made me not fully confident in who I am now. You know, I have an amazing boyfriend I'm actually in his parents' house right now um, because we got a house together and we're moving in in two weeks, actually, so that's exciting. But I definitely think that disability and, you know, being a part of the LGBTQ community definitely uh, have an interesting relationship <laughs> between the two. Yeah, I guess it, it comes with age and confidence. The more comfortable that I am in my own skin, the more comfortable that I am to just be who I am unapologetically and not really care what anyone else thinks. Um, similar to, to Ali, and I'm always going to have that image in my mind of you telling your parents that you have a girlfriend, <laughs> just deucing out. Um, <laughs> if I it's like you, you used the analogy earlier, Robbie, of like dropping a bomb. What Ali did was drop the bomb and then like action movie style, not look at it while putting on sunglasses and like the explosions <laughs> in the background, and she's just not looking at it while facing the camera. Like that, that's what that's what she did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that's the dramatic version of how it happened in my head. But really, it was just like, you know, I said, here's how it's happening. And, and then I went on living my life. But are you saying there weren't <laughs> I like your version better? <laughs> are, you, are you saying there weren't literal pyrotechnics in your coming out story? You know, if you weren't there, who's to say? It's true. There's, there's no evidence that there weren't. That's right. <laughs> this is also something I want to bring up with the intersection. Um, and why I wanted to talk about this, it's something I noticed during the YLF when we talk about relationships, is that people have a tendency to 
infantilize people with disabilities a lot. And this varies wildly from person to person. And I think it also largely depends on whether you have a visible disability. So when just some more terminology to throw at y'all, um, which is stuff you would learn if you come to the YLF, by the way, uh, shameless plug. Um, so like an invisible, an, if it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it would help to um, be able to say the words I'm talking about. An invisible disability is something that if you looked, if a, if a person looked on you in the street, they probably wouldn't notice. Um, I classify like my being on the spectrum as that, like to most people, I'm just a, uh, a dude walking down the street. Whereas someone in a wheelchair, for example, would have, that's considered like a visible disability. Like it's not really something you can hide. Not that you would want to hide it, but it's just more like people will register you as having someone, as a person who has a disability just by looking at you. I feel like people with visible disabilities, and I don't want to speak for them because I'm not one of them, but generally, but what's been conveyed to me is that they can be infantilized a little bit by both kind of society at large and even like the people who care around them, like inadvertently. So they don't see them as someone who like wants to like date and have like relationships because they kind of almost see them as a little bit either physically or just emotionally, mentally younger than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I, I have friends and colleagues who have definitely expressed that um, sort of, you know, people maybe with good intentions wanting to help, but inadvertently causing harm. But, and this is something we talk about at the YLF, um, sort of not wanting to let people take risks uh, with the intention of protecting them when they don't actually need protecting. Yeah, that, I, and I always like when you bring that up, talking about, um, yeah, like part of growing up and becoming a person is taking risks and learning from your mistakes. And that includes in the field of relationships too. I mean, we probably all had our share of like messy breakups at certain times, gotten our heart broken and stuff. And that sucks, but it's also like kind of part of life. And I feel like people view people with like society at large views people with disabilities as they're even surprised that they would want to participate in that kind of thing or like view them as even like able no pun intended to do so yeah it's and it's it's just like kind of annoying like people who don't have visible disabilities or aren't disabled at all like they go through like they go through like normal like sex education and stuff like that and they get all these things taught to us at a young taught to them at a young age and I feel like that's not the same for a lot of people with disabilities because it's just that doesn't even like click with the people who are teaching that stuff or like helping them like go through life in that way. Oh definitely so many people with disabilities miss out entirely on like sex ed and just general like health education and relationship advice um, because it doesn't even cross people's minds that people with disabilities would want to have relationships and sex and you know um, so it's yeah it, absolutely that's that's true because that's not even really an educational problem well it is a little bit but it's like how do you change how society at large views as an entire group of people the answer is not easily usually get involved with your local independent living center's advocacy efforts there's my advocacy plug <laughs> there you go that, there's one near you i promise <laughs> that will uh definitely help yeah that's true um if you're in the and if you're in the state of new york especially i mean yeah. i feel like most states generally speaking have them too but like new york specifically there like ali said there is one near you and they can help you with a lot of the kind of stuff that we're um we're, we're talking about 
Thank you so much for listening. We would like to quickly tell you a few things about what Families Together in New York State is doing that you might be able to take part in. Hey, don't skip this ad break quite yet. If you're strapped for time, sign up for our email newsletter instead. You can read up on all the same news and info for all things Families Together, plus so much more. Sign up today at ftnys.org slash contact. During the COVID-19 pandemic, advocacy has become more important than ever. Visit our website at ftnys.org to view our digital advocacy center to learn more about how you can get involved with foster care, children's behavioral health, education justice, and justice system involved youth advocacy. These are all issues that disproportionately affect LGBTQ youth in New York. Our digital advocacy center gives you all the tools you'll need to fight for change on these issues while still practicing social distancing and being safe during this unprecedented time. As part of our Amplify New York initiative, we will be holding virtual youth leadership forums all throughout 2021. These forums are for young people to speak up, build skills, and prepare to take on leadership roles. These peer-run forums bring opportunities to youth and give the next generation of leaders the tools and support they need for success. The virtual youth leadership forums are ongoing and are hosted at least every few months. We also have smaller standalone events related to Amplify New York that range from live episodes of this show to games of Dungeons and Dragons. Stay tuned and visit our website at ftnys.org slash youthpower or send an email to Zach at zkilmer, that's Z-K-I-L-M-E-R, at ftnys.org to learn how to sign up. We are accepting applications for the Youth Power Advisory Council. You can create systems change and bring youth voice to the highest levels of government. As part of the Youth Power Advisory Council, you will oversee the work that our network does to amplify youth voice while gaining beneficial skills and experience. Apply today at bit.ly slash capital Y-P-A-C-Y-3. Do you want to become a youth peer advocate? Youth peer advocates, or YPAs, are individuals between 18 to 30 years of age who self-identify as a person with first-hand experience with a social, emotional, medical, developmental, substance use, and or behavioral challenges. Youth Power Families Together administers the Youth Peer Advocate Credential in New York State. The credential formally recognizes your experience as a young person and the importance of peer-to-peer support for young people. If you are interested, check out our website at youthpower.ftnys.org ypa-credential to start your journey as a YPA. Lastly, be sure to follow us on all of our social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash families together NYS and on facebook.com slash youthpower.ny. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at FTNYS and at youthpower. If you want to send either Zach or myself an email about the podcast, you can shoot us a message at Z-K-I-L-M-E-R at F-T-N-Y-S dot org or R-L-E-T-T. I-E-R-I at ftnys.org. If you want to learn more about Youth Power Families Together, you can also shoot us a message at ypinfo at ftnys.org. What do you say, Robbie? Back to the show? Sure. Let's do it.
I mean, yeah, we've kind of already dipped into um, our stories a little bit, but um, yeah, I'll just reiterate again, just like being, being on the autism spectrum, it's just, this is why I love my boyfriend so much because he's, he's a very straightforward person. He says what he means. And that's kind of like what I need a lot. Um, and the, which is why we get along so fine. Like if he has a problem that he, or he wants me to do something, he says it instead of implying it. Because if you imply it, I would like to reiterate again, I will not get it. No matter how not subtle you think you're being, it's still too subtle for me. You need to say the thing out loud. So dating for me always just felt like, especially with people who were neurotypical and maybe not as well educated, like we're all in the field, so to speak. We work in this stuff. We know all the terms and all that stuff. And just especially work, like trying to date people who don't, sometimes it was just like, it was frustrating for me. It was frustrating for them. It was just frustrating for everyone because I just didn't know how to parse out the, especially when I was younger, I'm better at it now, but the more social, um, the, 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 all, all the subtleties, like, like romance is such a nuance. It almost feels like physics in a way. Like you need to like know the formulas and something needs to go in the right place exactly or else the entire thing gets messed up and that's what it like felt like to me a lot of the time trying to date being on the spectrum um i i can definitely relate to that in a way but also in a very different way because i don't know about you zach or, or you ali but i was always very introverted growing up and i still am kind of introverted in the way that like if i meet someone it takes me like it a year before i'm even comfortable like speaking around them or speaking freely around them and so I didn't have my first actual relationship until I was in my mid-20s. And so that was interesting. And when I, I met my boyfriend now, I'm with now when I was 24, it just felt so natural. And I think that's why we clicked so well, because I could actually communicate with him. And it was really refreshing and really amazing. And then it's also interesting looking at the relationships that I've had with my friends and meeting you know, his family and his friends. It took me like a year, almost two years before I was comfortable like, being myself around around these people that I had known for, you know, a year or two. And I, I never thought that someone would actually be okay with that or be okay with me being kind of quiet or introspective. But my boyfriend was, and that's, I'm really grateful for him. I just love hearing other people's stories. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I'm just processing. <laughs> it's no, so it's, nice. it's, it's, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I... I can be introverted, but I think I might be one of those like A, B people, like A, A, there's like A personalities, B personality, because sometimes I can be a little bit more extroverted. Like I, I, I make this joke with Kima all the time. Like he, so he's just a very like bubbly person. He's very friendly. So it seems like he would be an extrovert, but he's actually not. Like I, I say, uh, oh, we need to go somewhere on Tuesday. And he's like, are there going to be new people there? I'm like, yeah, there are people you haven't met in most locations, Chemo. And he just goes like, ugh. Like, how is it that I'm the one on the spectrum and I need to like coach you 
into meeting new people. Like I know, <laughs> I know that's like a little stereotypical, but it's like you know, I I can make that joke, but it's like that's what it like feels. I'm allowed. Like. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I went through the experiences, but that's what it feels like to me. I'm like you're like the bubble, like you're supposed to be an extrovert, but you're technically not, and it feels like I was supposed to be an introvert, and I'm technically not. Like how like how the heck did that happen? I definitely relate to that sort of in between or like back and forth in between extroverted and introverted because I'm just generally like a happy bubbly person but interacting with people is also very exhausting to me and I think a lot of that is actually like I've been masking my entire life and, and part of this is existing as like a neurodiverse person who was always very good at masking because I go to work and talk to people and you know do my public education stuff and and smile and interact with people and like I genuinely enjoy it but then I get home and I'm done um I can't do anything for the rest of the day I've given people all of my energy and I just like I can't do anything else I will not <laughs> pretend to be nice to one more person the rest <laughs> of the evening and that is that <laughs> yeah it's um it's just tiring um and so I I definitely relate to sort of you know being an extrovert in certain situations and, and then other spaces where like I don't feel totally safe you know like being my full identity um that's very very tiring and sometimes I just can't do it I also love how you brought up the your working life too and how that plays into your personal life or emotional life because I feel like it the people in my personal life they don't really understand how I do what I do like when I'm public speaking because I'm normally very quiet in, in real life quotes the amount of times my mother has asked me what I do <laughs> I'm really close to losing it she's like so like what exactly is your job I'm like mom it's been three years I've explained it 20 times like I I don't know what else you want me to say here the information is not retaining just like just say I work at a gas station to your friends or something at this point I don't know man like I don't know <laughs> that's a, that just that just reminded me of that and I just immediately got exhausted <laughs> but, you know I think we all like have a switch inside of us so I think I have a switch inside of me because like when I'm at work and when I was working at my last agency I was doing direct services. If I was not working, I would never try to interact with people that I didn't know. But like at work when you're, when you have to, cause it's your job, I actually enjoyed it. And it was like, I magically became an extrovert and I love talking to people and getting people to talk to me and like figuring stuff out. And then as soon as I would leave, I would just like go back in my shell, turn my switch off and like close the blinds, <laughs> trying to hide myself from the world. Um, so it's a very, interesting dynamic well i mean being an introvert doesn't mean you hate talking to people i think the whole idea is that it's how you get your energy back so extroverts char recharge by talking to people and introverts recharge by being away from people but it doesn't mean that you exclusively don't do both and i mean also the pandemic has broke my brain like if i was in the middle before i'm way more extroverted now like mm -hmm. the first time i'm going to be able to go to like a bar or club or something i'm going to like i'd never talk to strangers i don't do small talk but i'm just going to be like hello how's the weather today like i'm just <laughs> i'm going to be so aggressively friendly it's unreal i never thought i would miss that kind of stuff but here we are that's a really good point that i hadn't really thought about but just like in a lot of areas of my life, I've just sort of been like, today's a regular day, but you know what? I'm wearing this outfit that I have no business wearing today because it's really fun and 
who knows what I'm going to get to do it next. And same thing goes for like, yeah, meeting new people. What I just sort of, that's true. The pandemic has totally done that to me also. Um, where like things that I wouldn't have done before now I'm just sort of like, well, why not? <laughs> I never thought that I was going to miss wearing jeans mm-hmm. or like real pants. Cause I feel like it, since it, we went into lockdown, I've been in sweatpants or like sweat clothing <laughs> all day, every day. And my jeans are very angry at me because my buttons are like busting at the seams. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I think I'm excited to be able to just look like a normal person. And also similar to you, Zach, I want to just talk to people again. And yeah, I want like, to go to restaurants where I never wanted to do that before, but I just, I miss being in public around people. Yeah. When we like go back to doing like work stuff, especially, I feel like, like a lot of like pre-pandemic, everyone was just like, there's the constant joke it's just like god this meeting could have been an email but now now i feel like it's gonna be like this meeting could have been an email but i'm just happy to be here like i I don't (laughs) even mind like that's the point i'm gonna reach (laughs) just like no we probably didn't need to meet in person but like why not why not we can now um but yeah just steer it back a little bit so and i talked about it a bit with my story so i wanted to ask you guys you have it written down a little bit here so how like how has your disability impacted your dating life or like here's a more specific question that we actually talk about during the relationship panel like at what point do you disclose your disability with like a potential relationship partner or like when historically have you in the past because for me it was like a I think it was like a third date thing like I didn't I don't think I explicitly said it it was like third or fourth date with emo that I think I told him if I recall correctly I had like a, a similar experience to that that I had with my mom but with my boyfriend because I know it sounds weird. It sounds very strange. So I was very nervous to disclose the fact that I have mental disabilities. Um, And I waited, I think it was like two, maybe even three months before I brought it up, like freely. He wound up telling me, because we met their mutual friend and he was like, oh yeah, I've been following you on Instagram for a while. And also, I don't want to say my friend's name, but she she told me um, about your childhood and everything like that. So he knew. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Okay, cool. So I don't have to worry, anything to worry about. And of course, I still was nervous that like he would have some some judgments or that he would be nervous about being with me because I had disabilities. But he actually wound up having one of the disabilities I have, which is Tourette's, um, which also made it a lot easier to, to say that portion. So that's cool that you guys have like a mutual experience that you can share that way. I know. I I think it was on our, our second day. I saw him have his first like little tick. It was a little simple tick. And I was like, no way. And I didn't want to bring anything <laughs> up because I wasn't ready to like <laughs> Yeah, wait. I was like, hang on a second. Isn't yeah. that like the opposite of what you're supposed to do? Like almost in every other situation. <laughs> yeah. You guys can't see it. Just the face that Robbie just made you just like made, made a little tick. Just like, what? what's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was so excited. It sounds really bad, but I was like, oh my God, it's real. I think um, in this context, it's fine. Just you, you may, I'm allowed. Find, you may, yeah, exactly, exactly. We're allowed to make that joke. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think for me, it's depended on the person. I, I tend to date people who I've already been friends with for a while. Um, and so they tend to already know before like the romantic aspect is there, which I feel like is another sort of like safe and self-protective way to do things, which is, is sort of my style. Um, so my my disability identity and my queer identity only came together very recently in, in my dating life anyway. Both times 
I already knew the person um, for like more than a year before we started dating. It was already out in the open. My disabilities, because they're invisible, are really hard for people to understand, um, especially because I've always been very good at, at masking or like I have a lot of sort of coping skills that I've created for myself. And so the thing that I struggle with is constantly being invalidated by people who know me when I'm talking about my disability, even like family members and things. I think, you know, because I'm social and I've always done well in school and I was quiet and I was sort of always teacher's favorite and I, you know, did really well in college on paper, but mentally I was extremely struggling people see the external piece and say like, oh, you know, which none of this is accurate, but like you're too smart to have ADHD or which is not a thing. Um, ADHD affects all types of people. And a lot of the times, you know, people who are neurodiverse are like creative and social and there's, it doesn't look like anything. Um, it looks different in everyone. So it's just, the, the hardest part for me is when people don't believe me or the extent to which I'm struggling because I hide it well. And so something in my current relationship that I really appreciate is that my girlfriend just like takes me seriously and believes me. And I've, I've dated people, you know, when I was dating men, I had a lot of really supportive boyfriends who were great about that too. Um, but there have been times when people were just like, I don't think you have that because I can't see it. And so that's, that's I think, the, the biggest factor for me is like my partner's taking the time to understand like what it's like living inside my brain, believing me when I say like, I'm really struggling with this, or I just can't handle this right now, um, or whatever it might be. So that was, that was long-winded, but I hope it makes sense. Of course it does. Yeah. And I also think having an invisible disability is both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. I think for me in my relationship, it, that was like, I still don't, won't really verbalize my invisible disabilities too much in re regards to, like mental health diagnoses yeah and not because of the actual experience but because of the experiences that I've had because of having a mental health diagnosis and like it being involved in the mental health system and you know having to take medication or you know being in an inpatient facility and just fearing how people might view that was more scary to me than actually saying I'm bipolar I've struggled with depression my entire life or I have extreme anxiety <laughs> at all times yeah it's cool being able to hide it but then it's also scary to see or to worry about you know when it's really going to bubble out of control and how people might view it then well and I think there's pros and cons for like you like having a visible and invisible disability has a unique set of annoyances and like quote-unquote cons like for a visible disability it's it's like that problem we were talking about like people tend to infantilize a little, you a little bit it's like yeah if it's like a physical thing like people like hold, hold the door open for you like aggressively or something it's like and then from what i've heard from my friends who have conditions like this they're like i'm fine i don't like like y'all don't need to like kind of almost like virtual sig virtue signal that way. Whereas if you have an invisible disability, it's far flung sometimes the other side of the problem where people don't believe you, where the, the, you'll say it and then you're like, no, you don't. You, you, you can't be depressed. You are smiling. And then I just want to beat my head into a wall because of all the things wrong with that mm -hmm. sentence. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think there's a, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought again. I think what I was going to say is there's definitely a lot of, for me, um, privilege associated with having an invisible disability. 
because I can choose whether or not to disclose my disability, um, where people with dis or visible disabilities don't have that choice. And like, I would love to just always be authentic in my disability identity, but there are times when I don't disclose because I don't feel like it's a safe place for me to do that, or I feel like people look at me differently. And so that's, that's something to think about as well is I sort of, you know, personally have a choice in who I tell um, and not everyone has that experience. Well, and that's another thing where it's an interesting intersection with queerness too, because especially if you have an invisible mm -hmm. disability, oftentimes that's also something that we can hide if we need to, which is in a way a form of privilege. I mean, and not all LGBTQ people can do that, but generally speaking, a lot of the time it is possible. Like Robbie and I have both expressed, like I live on Staten Island and he lives on Long Island. And to be as gentle as humanly possible, there are pockets of both of those areas which do not match the values of other parts of the state where that would not be as, and generally speaking, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but like culturally conservative areas, like it's sometimes it's not safe to present either a queer or a disabled identity in like either, let alone both. So, and it's unfortunate, but that's part, like, it's interesting yeah. that both of those identities share an aspect of needing to hide yourself sometimes for safety. And by interesting, I mean awful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. It's, it's the... Uh both a, a privilege and a terrible thing that, you know, we feel the need to camouflage ourselves. Oh, one, one question I wanted to ask you, Ellie, and this isn't on the outline, but it's something that I thought of as I was talking and uh, feel free to, again, only answer as much as you're comfortable yeah. with. But um, do you think any of this is also like changed or like you have a unique experience in a way as someone who identifies as a woman who dates other women, like just because that's not an experience that either Robbie or I have. So I was just curious if that has also kind of bled into anything else we're talking about or just made it now you got you got, you got the triple threat. You got you got the misogyny, you got the homophobia and you got the ableism. One, two, three punch. But um not to make light of it, but yeah, is that, um, I was wondering if you could just like speak to that basically as much as you're comfortable with. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before. Um, so pardon me while I gather my thoughts a little bit, but um, I don't know because also I don't have your experience. So I'm not sure what it's like. I think in general, our world is, and, and this is a, a great generalization, but I, I have, you know, just sort of listening to the experiences of like um, my friends who are gay men. Um, I think that at least where I live, people are more accepting of women who date other women than they are of men who date other men. I live in upstate New York. It's very conservative here. I've, I've had a lot of negative experiences when I'm out with my girlfriend. I actually moved because of it because the, the town where I was living before um, was just so like, or at least the neighborhood I lived in was so anti-gay that like we just didn't even feel like we wanted to walk our dog outside. Um, Sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's, um, you know, I, I live uh, in Syracuse now, which is where I lived before um, I moved and I love it here. Um, in general, the city is pretty 
liberalish and generally accepting of you know people who are different um which I appreciate I feel like I can go to the bar with my girlfriend or go to the grocery store and like we don't have to not hold hands so that's nice but there are times when like I go to a specific place or I'm in a specific area within the city and like I know that it's not okay that's a tough question I I would be interested to hear sort of both of your experiences um existing in the world <laughs> well that that question you brought up it's the and this is something i the the whole the holding hands test is something i use yeah. to explain to straight people who maybe are well-meaning but not as educated in like queer stuff i i use this to just demonstrate something to them i'm like have you ever thought had to think about holding your partner's hand in public and have you had ever, ever had to consider your safety? And they think about it for a second and they're like, oh, wow, no. I'm like, I have to do that anytime I want to do that in public. And that's not their fault, but I use it as a demonstration. It's definitely like nothing has, nothing bad has ever happened to us, like in the terms of like people harassing us. But like, like if me and my boyfriend like hold hands in certain places, we've gotten looks and the looks right. are not nice looks. It's not like, a, oh, look at those cute youngins walking down the, it's more like a, not that so yeah that's it's interesting like how something as innocent and innocuous as holding hands can be such a litmus test for is this area safe for me to exist as myself in totally i think you know as as two women in a relationship there's the experience of like being overly sexualized as a couple that includes two women so like that happens a lot especially like in more like bar and restaurant environments and then there's like us walking our dog down the street holding hands and like some idiot in a pickup truck drives by and like this is some the, the reason I moved was hanging out the window with like a pretend shotgun and uh yeah as he was driving by us so like you know that's upstate New York um and that's the reality of of living um where I lived as somebody in a gay relationship and that those are two very, you know, that's like the most dramatic um, example, but the, the looks are constant and um, it's probably a different experience because most of the time, like the harassment that comes is from men, yeah. women, maybe like the occasional dirty look, but it's, it's, it's mainly uh, men that have been the problem historically. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you could probably say that statement in isolation for all of human history to be honest. <laughs> as a man <laughs> I can as a man I can confirm men usually the problem but um, um yeah and I mean it's just and that's not something I, I mean I had considered it but just some, like you as like being in a woman and woman relationship just being overly sexualized that's just mm -hmm. that's definitely not something I've ever experienced and that is gross that is there's just no it no other way to put that that's yeah. that's gross <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that that's been your experience and that that happened with the guy in the car oh yeah I mean that that's like the the most dramatic example of you know men being awful um, why is it always a pickup truck but it's always a pickup truck. It's always a pickup um, truck. <laughs> I mean, that's, that should not be our takeaway from that, but correct. it's not, not a takeaway. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Um, and that's that's not really something that I had thought about too much, but um, I do think it's just, you know, depending on um, a lot of different factors, people's relationships look different and, and their experiences are different sort of based on what it looks like externally, which is um, not okay, but reality. 
I, I've had this experience and I want to know if you guys have had the same like um, train of thought in public or if this is just me being neurotic, but like I've seen what clearly looks like a queer couple holding hands. And then I have this thing of, I look at them and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. I'm so glad there's more people who are doing that now. That makes me feel safe. And then I'm like, oh wait, I'm staring at them. They probably <laughs> think I'm being aggressive. And then I look away, but then it's, sometimes I feel like I'm being too obviously look away. So now they think I'm being homophobic by like trying not to make eye contact with them and then like i want to like my impulses run over explain no, no i'm an ally and i think you're cute but that would be way more creepy if i did that like and so that's just my stupid neurotic train of thought every time i see a fellow no, queer totally absolutely every time <laughs> we see another queer couple my girlfriend are like look, 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 look. but then it's like okay reel it in because like they don't know maybe that we're queer but like I, i've got my rainbow shirt on so like can i wave or like is that awkward I don't know but like I just want to be friends because there's not a lot of us here and, yes and, yeah you know, exactly and, it, and I'm like <laughs> what is the what is the appropriate ratio of, of like looking in the general direction to not looking in the general direction to be in that perfect middle line between not thinking I'm like some homophobic jerk and like not being a creep either like it's it's a very fine line yeah. I don't know what the answer is but but if you guys figure it out, please let me know. <laughs> I'm so I'm just so glad that I'm not alone uh, alone in that. Like, I also have that uh, weird experience where it's like I I'll see a couple holding hands and uh, I get envious that they're holding hands because like I want to be confident enough to hold hands with my boyfriend, but like we're just not. And like we're not too huge on PDA. We never really thought that we were until we went to Fire Island, which is what we were talking about during the first episode. We went there and like everyone was so inclusive and like we we're holding hands and like we like gave each other like a kiss on the lips. We weren't like making up, but you know, like a little quick peck. And it was a different experience to feel welcome to do so. Whereas it, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that like in the town that I live. Um, and I think that also stems from like our, our friend, we were out in, in Patchogue one weekend and him and his boyfriend were outside um, and they had just walked out. We were at a bar, this was pre-COVID and like they were attacked. And I think there's just like that fear that like it, that can happen and it just, it, it sucks. But it's like, I, I wanna be confident enough to hold, hold hands with my boyfriend but I also don't wanna get beat up for being gay. So it's, you know. I mean, that's a very real and understandable fear. And I don't think anyone's gonna blame you for not wanting to do that and I think what you just said and we talked about this a little bit in the Long Island episode is that that's why queer affirming spaces are so like stupidly important your gay bars your p-towns your fire islands like where the default it, it's it's switched around like everywhere else in the world everyone assumes you're straight unless proven otherwise and in those places it's not like that and I don't think that straight cisgender people can fully understand like what that's like because they're just so used to it like and that's not to say that I'm knocking them or anything but it's it's just such a different it's almost like a, it's like a weight has been lifted off you and it's like when you're in these spaces it's like I'm the default like as opposed to everywhere else in the world which is why those spaces are just so like hugely important and Honestly, I feel like being in spaces like that is what finally got me confident in my own um, identity as a gay person. Yeah, it's so interesting, Robbie, that you mentioned Fire Island because I went there for the first time last year, actually on a family vacation. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> um, and was it magical? <laughs> it was amazing. Like my girlfriend and I kept saying like, 
no one's looking at like no one cares we're, we're totally irrelevant here like it's not I didn't realize how much anxiety I had in public mm-hmm. surrounding my safety until we went to Fire Island and we just got to exist I had no idea like how stressed out I was all the time mm-hmm. until I went on this vacation and everybody around us is gay or like at the very least nobody cares like no one's looking at me um and it was just such like a relief and it it lasted for like a month after we left and I feel like now I'm sort of back in my you know normal mode of like okay I'm on a vacation um but yeah that that just sort of relief of like being invisible and like nobody cares about you (laughs) in a in a positive way um I had never experienced that before and so yeah totally having those spaces is just like like you said Zach um really gave me the confidence to sort of go home and act like myself for a little bit until it wore off (laughs) and uh we're going again this year because it was just so great so um yeah I'm I'm glad you guys brought that up yeah I'm hoping like pan I'm vaccinated and chemo is vaccinated now I'm hoping we'll be able to start going to queer affirming places that aren't just my apartment sometime soon that would be that's the only queer affirming place i've been in the last year so that would be really nice so that was a fantastic conversation i think we'll begin to wrap it up here if you guys have any other just uh disability slash queer identity comments to throw to the listeners before we uh conclude i think it's going to be i think this is going to be a two-parter I think this is con. I don't want to cut much of this conversation. So, uh, um, if you're listening, this this will be part one where the conversation with Ali, Robbie, and I, and then part two will be the live event where we'll hopefully hear from a bunch of um, youth on being queer and part of the disability community. Community, but uh, yeah, any uh, final words you want to bestow upon the listeners, uh, you guys? Being your authentic self is really important, but also doing that in a space where you're ready to do that and supported to be able to do that is something that's equally important to consider. I know Zach touched on that earlier, but I wish that everyone had the opportunity to come out and and be authentic in both their sexuality and their disability identities when they realize them. But I also want everyone to be safe and, and take their mental health under consideration. So I, yeah, I would just encourage you to sort of think about both of those things um, as you're kind of figuring this stuff out. And for me, it's, it's just like a lifetime. You know, I don't know what my identity is going to be next year. Maybe it'll be different. Yeah, just make sure that you're, you're keeping yourself safe in all of this as well. Don't worry about any timelines that you feel pressured to, to follow. Um, follow your own gut instincts. Follow what feels good to you, what feels right and acceptable for you personally. And just live your own life. The way that you want to not the way that you think other people need you to very, very wise words thank you guys um ali is there anything you want to uh plug wh- while you're here uh when it comes to the uh, independent living center or uh, any other stuff you you got sure. going on um i would really just encourage anybody who's listening to this who has any sort of disability identity to reach out to their local independent living center if you identify as having any type of disability, and that includes mental health, um, independent living centers will support you. Most of our services are free. Um, And you can just Google 
independent living centers in New York State or wherever it is that you're listening from and a map will come up that will let you choose the independent living center closest to your your county or your home. Um, if you're lucky enough to have more than one in your county, mostly there's there's pretty much one per county at this point in New York. Um, so there's going to be one near you. And if not, most ILCs are doing a lot of virtual services these days because of COVID. So there's there's going to be one that you can connect with. And we offer all types of different services from advocacy to education to sometimes things like home modifications. Every center is a little bit different, but I would really just encourage you to reach out and get involved, get on their email lists, look at their Facebook pages and just see what they have to offer that can support you because it's just a really great network to be a part of. Independent living is a lot of the reason why I am as confident in my identities as I am now, because I started working in this field. It's a great way to meet other people with similar identities to you, and they're just really great safe spaces. And if you need help, maybe, uh, Zach, if you want to put my contact info in the notes of the podcast, if that's something that you can do, I'm happy to help anybody. I think I can. I will try to make that happen. Yeah, but Google is a great resource too. Just Google Independent Living Center near me. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here, Allie. You were uh, delightful. One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Robbie, since our last episode, you have a different position within Families Together. I don't think we mentioned that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I... You want to you wanna talk about that and plug that real quick? Basically, just to plug your own sure. self? Sure. Because <laughs> um, you, you basically got a promotion. Thank and that's you. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I am... No longer the Long Island Regional Youth Partner. I am now the Youth Peer Services Training and Credentialing Manager. Um, so if yeah, anyone, thank you. Yeah, if anyone is interested in becoming a credentialed youth care advocate, please feel free to contact me. Um, my email is r-l-e-t-t-i-e-r-i at ftnys.org. It's exciting. It's fun. And if anyone is also interested in applying for the Long Island Regional Youth Partner position that is open, so please feel free to send us your cover letters and resumes. All right. Thank you guys so much. So I'm thinking I, we're actually not going to do the sign off right now because I want to save it for the live episode. I think it'll be cooler if we, as we've seen, we've trying to do it with three people hasn't worked out. So more than a dozen, surely that <laughs> will, but by, by, by that logic, like that, that'll be the good one. That'll be when we nail it. I believe it. I like your this option. one. I guess for this, we can just leave you with the image of Allie putting up the peace sign with an explosion going on behind her. If any of you um, have a graphic design or drawing experience, uh, if you would like to make that, I don't think we can offer you money, but we would be very appreciative. Bye, everybody. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here.